Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of our Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution by the Group of International Communists Reading Group Series. Today is Friday, the 31st of December 2021, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today we read Chapter 12, The Abolition of the Market. Apologies for not releasing an episode for the last two weeks, but unfortunately I've been omnicroned. I fear that I might now be suffering from long COVID, so hopefully that doesn't drag on too long. I've had to cancel four interviews in the last couple of weeks while I've been recovering, so hopefully I get a chance to record these over the next couple of weeks and release them in due course. This week I have the new monthly subscriber Beyond Meritocracy, and the new annual subscribers, Larry McNeely and Adam Bilby, to thank. If you'd like to help out the show, please head on over to the Patreon and throw me a few commie dollars. It really does help to keep these episodes flowing. Okay, let's join the discussion. Welcome to the 12th session of our Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution Reading Group series. Today we're on to Chapter 12, the abolition of the market, just when we thought we were finished throwing shade on various other communist slash anarchist movements, we're back to hitting the Bolsheviks a bit about the market. Okay, so can I get somebody to throw their hand up who wants to read this first section? There we go, Will. All right. Well, the abolition of the market. A, with the Bolsheviks, the Supreme Economic Council distributes the product of society. The Russian Revolution has not only shown us that production without a unit of accounting is a childish fiction of naive fantasists, but has also given us lively enlightenment about the mysterious, much-discussed question of the abolition of the market. This has always been a very difficult topic. Yes, Marx was an easy talker. He could say that under communism, the market would be abolished, but how would operational units get their means of production and raw materials? if they could no longer obtain them on the market? And how would the workers get their food if the market did not act as a mediator between producers and consumers? The Bolsheviks are trying to solve the problem by implementing the general cartel of Hilferding. The entire production and distribution would function without money, without a market, and without product prices as one huge monster enterprise. The development of the dissolution of the market was very fast because the value of the ruble fell so fast that the prices of goods rose by the hour. Soon, almost nothing was available for money, so that the entire food supply was almost completely in the hands of the state. Zinoviev writes about this, quote, If the value of money is falling in Russia, it is certainly very difficult for us to bear. But we have a way out, a hope. We're heading for the complete abolition of money. We are naturalizing wages... We are introducing free use of trams, we have free schooling, free lunch, and even, if for the time being poor, free housing, lighting, etc. We are doing this very slowly in extremely difficult circumstances. We have to fight all the time, but we have a way out, a hope, a plan, end quote. In fact, all economic life in the cities was regulated in this way. The farmers were excluded so that the commissariat of food supply, the Narkomprod, served 38 million people. Considering that telephone, water supply, gas, electricity, rent, transport, 
and fuel were provided free of charge, it is fair to say that the market in the cities was abolished. It would therefore appear that we have an excellent basis here for an investigation into the question of the abolition of the market. However, this is only the case to a very limited extent, as this socialization of distribution had to be carried out under very unfavorable conditions. Russia was shaken by civil wars, which meant that the production system had to be largely geared towards war production, and a significant proportion of industrial workers were taken out of production. As a result, farmers could not be supplied with industrial products at all, so they had to supply their grain without receiving anything in return. Under these circumstances, it is obvious that the farmers refused to farm their land so that there was less and less to distribute. We are giving this information to show that the Russian idea of market abolition had very poor chances of being realized. The fiasco, which the concept finally suffered, could therefore be explained by the supporters of this position from the circumstances. An assessment of the possibility of such a system would only be possible where it could be fully implemented. We would, therefore, only be able to examine the problems of abolishing the market in Russia in practice if we were able to supply farmers with all kinds of products after all. Unfortunately, this was not the case. And so the only result is that we have a clear idea of what the Russians mean by abolishing the market. This in itself, however, is very important. The Russian view is as follows. The Bolsheviks wanted to replace the market with production and consumption statistics. The Supreme Economic Council, in conjunction with Narkomprod, would statistically determine the quantities of bread, sugar, meat, textiles, etc., needed to meet the needs of the population. Accordingly, the Supreme Economic Council would then issue production orders to the operational units. The Supreme Economic Council had an overview of the needs, knew the productive forces, and would now set up production to meet the needs of the people. The prerequisite for such production control was that the management and direction of the entire operational life were concentrated in the hands of the Supreme Economic Council. As far as we have done so far, the investigation does not give rise to any new assessments. It is the realization of an old theory that we have already encountered in the discussion of Sebastian Fowers' libertarian communism. However, the practice has already shown that in such a system, there can be no production calculation in reality, so that no planned production can take place. This is kind of reverting back somewhat to some of the stuff that we've hit earlier in some of the earlier chapters, really here about the way they were going for the Hilferding approach. There's nothing particularly new here that jumps out to me. Does, does anybody have anything to say on this bit? It seems somewhat of a rehash of previous points, but with some new new information, a few statistics and a few quotes. Well, it's kind of impressive that they were they they served in the life in the cities was regulated in this way, um, so that the commissariat of food supply served thirty eight million people. You know, that's a, a hell of amount of people to take out of the market for food, and also saying that. Telephone, water supply, gas, electricity, rent, transport, and fuel were provided free of charge. That's a that's a hell of a lot of the composition of people's say wages today. Like if you took out gas, electricity, rent, transport, water supply, telephone, you know, and food, 
there's not that much left, which kind of makes me wonder a little bit towards getting what we were talking about last week. I think I think it might have been you, Will, that made this point that mm-hmm. like there's not that much factor of uh, individual consumption kind of left if we were to do a similar thing like under a the system as proposed here. Yeah, there's there's not much else <laughs> remaining, and so it's just a question of do we actually do we want to socialize those things and like how quickly you know is is it acceptable to not fully have you know freely take food you know as an example yeah like it, it, it see maybe there's like uh you see with with this stuff maybe some of them like rent would be would be gone there wouldn't be a rent but there are i would say there's probably in all of those sections there like in most countries now especially since neoliberalism like telephone water supply gas electricity there are probably large rents that people are paying there I know the composition in America for some of these, uh, you know, as a percentage of people's pay is a lot higher than other countries. So there might actually be still quite a lot of disposable income. So I can imagine there could be 40, 50 percent disposable income after you take these out in a communist society when you get rid of all these various rents. But it's still something, you know, it's still it's still a very interesting point. Jitsi, I think that's Herman. Yes, I think this was a little bit the point we discussed um, in the previous chapter. Uh, on, no, it was uh, in the chapter 11, section 8, the growth process of communism. And uh, the, I, I said that I feel it is a little bit a contradiction what they wrote there, because here they say that the practice uh, has already shown that in such a system, there can be no production calculation in reality. And this is exactly what uh, they described a little bit in the growth process of communism. So therefore, I think this is really a point to consider that there is a a big risk in uh, socializing um, so much of the consumption. Yes, the working time calculation is always a necessary measure the people need in order to to rationalize um, their their needs in respect to the work which uh, belongs to it would they would they not still be doing the labor time calculation though even if these are in the gsw units so it would be possible to have a rational calculation Yes, but I think then they must decide. So if they continue with the working time calculation, of course they can can say this is just an information. But if you take the information seriously, then you keep to this information. And if people don't do this, then you remind them that uh, there is a rationality behind this information and they cannot just do what they want. So therefore, I think it's not just taking free for your need and in addition you have this uh, calculation so i think either or either the calculation says something what is relevant or or not okay uh will let's hand up yeah so it seems like they're making a couple points about the kind of socialization that took place in in the early ussr first that they're starting off with a bad model right they're they're modeling everything on the general cartel model then the second thing is that, like, due to the circumstances of the revolution, they're not actually exchanging anything with the peasants, right? Part of the whole merit of this labor time calculation is everyone gets back exactly what they receive, right? The peasants are getting nothing because it's a war and they didn't have implements to give them, but they still needed their food. It's unclear that they're like, that they're 
like, like Herman said, like based on the previous chapter, it's unclear that they're actually arguing against these kinds of socializations. They actually sound kind of impressed by them, you know? It, and so then it's a question of, you know, is it just because they had a bad model and bad contingencies? Or is it like we really need to go much slower here and have a kind of, you know, worker starve setup? What was the last thing you said there? Worker what setup? Oh, worker starve. You know, like, you know, if you do not put in the work and you haven't been allotted uh, claims on the social product, that's the rule. Everyone follows the rule. They get what they give. Right. That's the alternative. Right. Yeah, but I can imagine that they're like I can imagine an equivalent of a, a of a UBI being paid out of. So this is all pop, this for me that, that, largely falls into policy. Producers, you know what I mean? Right? Yeah, that's yeah, that, like that's a, discretion of the producers, right? They have to, it's only yeah. by their leave that you, that others get to eat. Yeah, like I think. Well, it's an interesting point, but like we would assume that uh, non-producers also have a vote. You know, like mm-hmm. pensioners or whatever uh, would have a vote, or you know, different people that aren't. You know, I think we think we would assume that everybody would have a vote, but it, it seems to me more like a, a, a it falls into the realm of of a policy. You know, what do we put into GSW? You could say, uh, you know, a minimum. Everybody gets a minimum standard of. Everybody gets rent free, and everybody gets a you know a minimum basket of you know pot of rice every week if they bag and rice if they need it. You're not going to let them starve, but if people want to have, you know, good levels of consumption, they got to, you know, pull their finger out. I, I, I can imagine it'll go. I would imagine that would be something that would typically become a kind of common norm. The other thing is that if it's in a revolutionary period, you know, where you have, you know, essentially a class war, I, I can imagine at that stage, like it would definitely, it could absolutely be a, if you don't work, you don't get, you don't get food. So. You know, I, I can imagine this would be not just a policy issue, but also like, a, you know, a class war issue, certainly in the earlier stages. OK, we'll be good to move on to B. Randy. The Supreme Economic Council distributes the labor power. However, this practical experience may not be of convincing importance for the workers. Therefore, we will now let the practice speak from a completely different perspective. The practice has already shown that the producers in the system are nothing other than the toy of those who dispose of the means of production and the social product. The Supreme Economic Council is responsible for the distribution of the national income. It decides which part of the product is intended for the consumer, how much is used to expand the production apparatus, and with which part it strengthens its dominant position in the state apparatus. Therefore, if it may not yet be convincing to the workers that such production is impossible, the political significance is much more important. In the ever-increasing concentration of the production apparatus in the hands of the state, we see the forms in which the dictator of the proletariat passes into the dictatorship over the proletariat. This is the political lesson we must learn from the Russian abolition of the market, and it is urgently needed. For among the revolutionary workers, we still find the widespread opinion that the first years of the Russian Revolution showed a development towards communism, but that with the induction of the NEP, With the reintroduction of the market, it was diverted into capitalist channels. Our research shows that this view is wrong. The development of the first years was a development towards ever-increasing enslavement of the working class, enslavement that kept pace with the concentration of the productive forces with the growth of communism. Every further step towards the supply in natural produce meant a greater dependence on the central apparatus. 
In the end, the situation was such that the production managers had a huge army of slaves at their disposal, and they determined how much product they would allocate to this army as wages. Perhaps many readers will find this formulation exaggerated, but this is by no means the case. We will prove it. This enslavement did not come about because Lenin, Trotsky, etc. were so obsessed with power, but because there was no other way. If the management and control of the huge production apparatus are in the hands of a supreme economic council, then they must have access to the human material. The practice of the Russian Revolution proved this. We now want to show how, in this system, all individual freedom has ceased and everyone only has to follow the instructions of the production managers. Trotsky usually does not mince his words, and so he explains. If we are to speak seriously of a planned economy, if labor is to be distributed in accordance with the economic plan at the given stage of development, the working class must not lead a nomadic life. It must be moved, distributed, and detached, just like the soldiers. The Central Committee for the General Labor Duty, therefore, decided in December 1919 under the chairmanship of Trotsky that the skilled worker leaving the army with the workbook in hand is the name of the country's production plan must go where his presence is required. Besides, the Committee on Labor Day decided that workers could be forced to give up their homework in order to work in the state-owned enterprises, while it could likewise command that the transfer of labor from one operational unit to another can be carried out in accordance with the production plan, as above. For the introduction of the production plan, the workers were therefore simply sent to work, while they were often forced to work without any remuneration. This was particularly true in the case of logging, where the farmers were forced to cut down the wood from the forests free of remuneration under the point of the bayonet. Serfdom was reintroduced under communism. No wonder that the workers did not feel too much for this kind of communism. Thus, Trotsky complained that the hundreds of thousands of workers deserted. He says, In the major industries, we have 1,150,000 workers, but in reality, only 850,000 workers. What happened to the 300,000? They have left. Where did they go? In the village, maybe, to other industries. Maybe they are engaged in speculation. We conclude that the practice has already decided that the abolition of the market through a centralized order of production and distribution also means a centralized orientation of the human material, which, like soldiers, must be transported, distributed, and detached. This also raises the question of whether this is really the abolition of the market in the communist sense. Before we take a closer look at this, let us take a closer look at the Bolshevik view, even if it can't be done on the basis of the practice. Wow, there's quite a lot in there. (laughs) Okay, I find this stuff very interesting. I just like the historical quotes. I love reading this stuff. I think it's really interesting. So let's try this one. In the ever-increasing concentration of the production apparatus in the hands of the state, we see the forms in which the dictatorship of the proletariat passes into the dictatorship over the proletariat. And he makes the kind of case as well here that, like, you know, he, so we can, the situation that ended up is that you have this massive, basically, an army of slaves, he, he says here, or they say here, at the whim of the production managers and the Supreme Economic Council. And but he, but he makes a kind of a kind of a materialist case here. He says, this enslavement did not come about because Lenin, Trotsky, etc. Were so, were so obsessed with power, but because there was no other way. You know, I think there might be some kind of, you know, I think that might be giving Lenin and, and Trotsky and some of these guys a little a little way out. You know, we see early on, I think in chapter two, how the SPD, once Engels had died, essentially went towards a Hilferding approach pretty quickly. They changed their, their policies. 
And, you know, Lenin and Trotsky and these guys, I'd have to think, were kind of aware of these debates. So they kind of went in for this kind of top-down bureaucratic approach. The fact that it ended up so bad maybe have surprised some of them, but they did go for it. So I think it's there's a little bit of uh, column A and a little bit of column B there. What do people think? Am I being too harsh on Lenin and Trotsky or am I being too easy on them? Will? As far as I understand, like, from this book and other areas, like, these ideas were kind of the mainstream Marxist ideas of the Second International. And, you know, these people, the the GIC, represented the kind of left wing of those debates. So, yeah, they, they kind of picked the mainstream view, which, you know, they're critiquing and saying is wrong. But also it's like it was the mainstream view. It was what everyone believed. And also there's just kind of like a political point. It's a lot easier to make this point of being like, ah, oh, what could they have done? You know, <laughs> you know, so that you don't have to be uh, as critical of the uh, them and the revolution. If you're, if you're trying to win people over to your to your cause, you know, show a different way forward without having to attack the beloved leaders of before. I'd, I'd, I'd like to know, like, how much how much of the debates on on these type of economic issues were about at the time and how aware some of the big leaders were that's just an interesting kind of a kind of a historical one but certainly like there is no other way that things could have happened once you have this idea of the supreme economic council pushing and demanding people around i i do think like there's a whole lot of quotes i remember doing a review by of a paper by a korean marxist called i think i'll, I'll, I'll destroy his name but zho jing zhang we did with the general intellect unit. And there was a whole load of quotes about this kind of stuff, about how the workers are army, they have to do it, do what they're told. The skilled worker leaving the army with the workbook in hand in the name of the country's production plan go must go where his presence required. You know, it's just chock-a-block of, of, of quotes like that. It's kind of incredible here. If they're looking at, they thought in the major industries, they had 1.2 million workers, essentially. And like nearly a, probably just over a quarter, nearly just shy of a third of the workers, you know, had legged us. You know, they probably just went, these conditions are so rough, so crap. Like, what is this communism or socialism if we just got, like, people bossing us around and treating us like shit and making us work long hours? Might as well go back to the village. And that's an, that's an incredible lack of productive output. Like, imagine what would happen in the morning to the U.S. economy if, like, <laughs> what would the equivalent now be you know, what if like 30 million workers just decided, fuck this, I'm going to do a homestead and I'm going to go home and grow some tomatoes? You know, it would just be pure savage. Kielce. I, I wonder how much of that can be related to their own ex- lived experience and, and that wouldn't apply today in the same way. So we could be talking here about workers who have villages to go back to, whereas that's not the case in Amer- modern America. And where, given the choice under any circumstances, that they're not being a landlord or a, a local a local warlord, um, you know, kicking them out and threatening them, that, that people would choose to go back to the village because they just prefer that sort of life compared to the sort of miserable conditions you might expect to see in cities. Yeah, like a you know, uh, definitely not making the case that it, w- it could happen today, you know, but uh, it's just like trying to get across the case. Like, imagine if it were to happen, like, what would it mean for the economy, you know? I think Randy put up his hand. Yeah, uh, I was thinking it seems a lot, especially I'm on the West Coast over here, and it seems like this kind of explains the homeless crisis in a lot of ways of you know them wanting to form communities and then prioritizing that over being a part of the labor force. Like, there's a, it's a pretty huge deal. 
explain can you expand on that a bit like what do you what do you mean like that the homeless people themselves prefer to have a homeless community than to work well i think it's a combination of you know some people not being able to contribute in a way that they can like sustain themselves especially in areas with high rent and stuff plus there's a kind of how it happens in america is there's a lot of migration of the homeless from all over America to the coasts because a lot of the central states just criminalize it. So it's kind of like in the like so I'm kind of thinking in this example, like the three hundred thousand are the people going from all over the US who don't really want to participate in the labor force because of the, you know, shitty conditions and the lack of hope and all of those sort of things. And then going to the West Coast and then because there's not really like the ability to go back to the village. And the closest thing to that of living in a village and kind of a communal lifestyle is, you know, either communes or a lot of the kind of homeless communities that have been set up over here with a lot of mutual aid networks and the like. Will, I think, had his hand Oh, yeah. No, it, ju- it just reminds me of kind of the fall of Rome or, you know, the fall of maybe the Republic, you know, early, like they, they get too good at conquering and being an empire. So they import all these slaves and then, you know, they displace all of their laborers from the fields who are like form the backbone of their army and stuff. And then they have a huge surplus population in the city. And then they have all this political conflict over the uh, bread dole. Right. And then eventually, you know, there's violence and eventually Caesar takes power. So, you know, I think it's a symptom of the, uh, the decaying empire. Ah, yes. The decaying empire. I love to see it. Okay. So, yeah. So I've definitely seen a number of quotes from Trotsky definitely numerous ones treating workers as soldiers and i also think there's a lot of time the inspiration of fordism coming into that as well which lines up with what they're saying and you know whether they're you know you see lenin or trotsky as power hungry people or not like for this sort of implementation they become kind of the ideal figures to run that sort of system because they have those views of treating the workers like soldiers and in this sort of manner so whether it's their you know subjective opinion or not like they kind of become the ideal leaders for that kind of implementation and the kind of question i had is like earlier they kind of talked about the avoiding like sidestepping the question of centralization versus decentralization but like in this section where it talks about the supreme economic council it almost sounds like in that context like centralization and concentration essentially become the same and i'm wondering like what is what is the difference between that concentration and centralization then I don't know. Like when you say concentration, you mean concentration of what? Well, they were talking about the concentration, you know, the right of disposal over all the labor, basically, to decide, you know, whether they're going to feed uh, those resources back into strengthening their own position, how much of it is going to go to income for workers. So they basically have all the decision making power. But I, I guess I don't I guess I see that like centralization and concentration just sound like the same thing. And I'm not sure if I'm like not picking up on the nuance because earlier in the book, they were talking about, we're going to sidestep the question of centralization versus decentralization that anarchists and Leninists often fight about. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Chris? Yeah. I I wanted to just say that uh, 
I think that just describes a class society. <laughs> if, if, if you have a, a center that has control over the surplus and how it's disposed of and how it's uh, allotted, then that's a class society. There's no way around it. And that's what this USSR was. What kind of class society it was, you can debate, but I think it's incontestable. You know, when you have people enslaved in the, in the taiga, you know, chopping wood at bayonet point. Yeah, that's, I think that's about it. Uh, Herman. Yes, I think uh, their point here is uh, that when there is no direct relation between uh, the producer and the product based on the working time calculation, then you get a concentration of the production apparatus in the hand of committees or the state. And this is really the difference. And this is a, a criticism of uh, the Bolshevist idea to, to run this like a general cartel, economy in kind. Is there, do you think there is a, a difference between centralization and concentration then? Or is it just hand and glove with each other? No, there is a difference because concentration, they mean concentration as a, as a power. So someone, some committee or state uh, decides. So if, if there's a direct relation between producer and, and product based on the working time calculation, it's not really relevant if you organize certain things centralized or or decentralized with this system, because this is something completely different than, uh, um, than, than the central administration versus uh, a direct relation between uh, product and producer. Okay, thanks for that, Herman. Okay, are, are we going to move on then? See, the consumption statistics, who wants to raise their hand there and do a bit of reading? Alan. See, the consumption statistics. The real intention of the Bolsheviks, as we know, was to produce for the needs of the workers. Now that is easier said than done. For how will the Supreme Economic Council learn about the needs of the workers? What is its measure of need? Surely it can more or less determine how much bread, meat, etc. is needed by all workers together. So it's relatively easy to produce production and consumption statistics for these matters. However, this has its shortcomings because it's very complicated to consider the shades of needs in statistics. This makes it even more difficult to go beyond the uniform bread, uniform clothes, and uniform sausage. The objections become even more serious, however, if we look at the products that are not used by everyone, but which are due to the special nature of different people. How great is the demand for these goods? Surely the statistician can try, but that is precisely not to gear production to the needs of the people. And last but not least, there's the major objection that if you produce according to statistics, you make economic life freeze. If operational units have produced according to consumption statistics, it is very likely that demand has already changed again, and therefore the apparatus is not geared to demand. The thing is, therefore, that it is not possible to squeeze the flow of life into the formulas of the consumption statistics and it therefore makes no sense to want to determine the demand statistically. Statistics do not go beyond the very general. They cannot grasp the particular. We can, therefore, say that production according to consumption statistics is by no means production according to needs, but rather production according to certain standards, which for us are determined by the central management body of operational life. But as we have already said, this is an academic question. After all, we are not interested in whether production based on statistics is possible or not. 
in any case, it can only be carried out if there is a central power of disposal over the human material, and we do not want that. Okay, uh, so this makes a couple of like, kind of a very simple point about how you know it's easy to come up with statistics for you know tons of sugar, tons of concrete, right? But then when it gets down to like smaller objects, like how many of these types of felt, new felt tip pens are you know, these type of corduroy trousers, you know, that th things that fluctuate with taste, new products coming on the scene, people experimenting. Like, how do you decide how many, like, say, things that are of a particular taste of certain people, things people should, we should be producing? I think it's just, it, 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 it's very, I think it becomes very difficult because it's not a steady flow. Like I used to work in uh, doing data analytics for a crowd that, uh, like a, a big chain of equivalent to Walmart in in the UK, with you know literally million of SKUs. So that's like the identifier codes for the different products. And like you would have very uh, regular consumption patterns for certain things, but other things actually would be all over the place. A new product would come in and become extremely popular, and you cannot predict that from like you know twelve months ago what's going to happen to frozen yogurt, you know? So this idea that you could have a statistician, you could have a central statistics body decide all these small items, to me, it's not even, uh, it's not even nearly logically possible. Randy had his hand up. Um, yeah, one thing I guess I'm just, I am not very informed about, so I'm curious, how did it end up getting decided in the USSR? Like, was it just the central body would generally allocate themselves the most like favorable or stylish items essentially i feel like that's like the american like view of it but i don't know how accurate to the truth that is i'm not that sure i remember hearing somewhere that like what would happen a lot of times is that you know a certain type of blouse or shoe was made and people would really like it and so that what the planners would say that they get the big there'd be a big desire for this. And then they'd say, oh God, these are, people really want these and they'd produce a big glut of them. And every, then no one wants them because everybody had them. <laughs> you know, there's loads of kind of quasi-market type stuff going on there. But, you know, I really don't, I don't know when it came down. I think it was, I think it was pretty decentralized at the very lowest level of production. Does anybody know? I know there was big material balances for large-scale important items. Slavic. Yeah, my understanding is that the general emphasis was towards like heavy industry, which is why you had these large black markets for like things that are for individual consumption. You know, like in the later years, this you know, there's this whole thing with like everybody wanting like American blue jeans and the only way you can get them is through black market. So I think in general, the decision was like, okay, we're going to focus really hard on raw industries. And, and military, things like that, and then just kind of leave the individual consumption behind for for a while. At least that's how the emphasis changed. So, And then you kind of got those needs met through like black market routes. <laughs> so, Sorry, so by I, that, I mean like they just completely, I think, de-emphasized like, oh, well, it's not seen as a need as much. We got to put everything to catch up with the West, right? But I do think they didn't have like material balances for small consumption items because they did have like, but by the end, I think they were, God, I'm trying to remember the statistics, but I think it was in the couple of million like individual items that they were, they were producing, but they weren't planning all of those. Uh, Chris. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know more about material balances for just everyday consumer items. But one, one thing that I find shocking is, I, like, bearing in mind, you know, most of the industry was destroyed. They weren't, they weren't producing at a pre-World War I level even. You know, it's something like 80% of production was down in, you know, a lot of heavy industries. But still, you could have, there are simple things that they could have uh, tried to produce for, say, that farmers would want who are already producing at a pretty primitive level. You know, iron plows and, and you know, very simple things, pots and pans, things that they would actually could use and would improve their lives in a very direct way. If they, if they had some input into what they could actually give the farmers in return that didn't require a lot of resources to produce, not like tractors or anything. It might have might have solved a lot of these issues, but it, it doesn't appear that they had any interest or at least any uh, means of figuring that out at least the way they were doing it. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I could be wrong there, but that, that's just how it seems to me. I think as well, if you wanted to industrialize, you wanted to maximize the rate of exploitation of the peasants as well. So I think there's a lot of that going on, you know, get them to work five That's, extra hours yeah. and then give, give them a pot. <laughs> I mean, how much can um, they do? Like it's, it's determined by the, it's a short growing season in Russia. There's only so many, so much rye you can, or, or wheat or whatever you can harvest. It's, um, it's like you throw throwing people at it and having them work extra long it, with the same implements. They don't know how, how it could increase yields, but yeah, it's, uh, well, you could probably thing. like, <laughs> you could probably bring more, um, you could bring more land into use. You know, that's, there's always yeah. kind of marginal land. Yeah, yeah, that could be one way, yeah. Uh, Herman. Yes, <clears throat> I think the most important part in this uh, section C is in the last two sentences. So they write more or less that if you can produce according to statistics or not is for them an academic question. They are not really in this book interested in this academic question they took it just up for an example so in any case they say that this is then carried out by a central power and this is really their point in the book that if you can produce according to statistics or not or how successful this is 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 really besides the point because there is still wage labor connected with this kind of organization of the economy and this is what they from a worker's point of view say at the end, the last sentence, we don't want that. Yeah, no, very good point. Very good point. Yeah, I kind of skipped over that. Okay, uh, D, uh, Alan, do you want to take D then? D, with the bourgeois economists, the market as a measure of needs. For the bourgeois critics of communism, the abolition of the market is the central point of their struggle and also their strongest weapon. It is no coincidence that this is their strongest weapon. In the struggle against communism, they can only oppose the hitherto prevailing conception of communism, which is nothing other than the replacement of the market by a statistical apparatus. The critics rightly point out that these are hollow phrases that conceal the lack of clear concepts. The bourgeois critics all agree that the market, despite all its negative aspects, is in any case a measure of needs. The market playfully solves the question of adapting the production apparatus to needs. The market mechanism ensures that a change in requirements is immediately transferred to the production system without the use of statistics. When demand for a product increases, 
the demand on the market increases, prices rise, and the capitalists expand the production for this item. When the demand for a particular product decreases, the market immediately reduces production to match the reduced demand. From their point of view, the market mechanism can very well do what the consumption statistics cannot do. Therefore, they declare communism to be impossible as long as it cannot be specified what is to replace this mechanism. The economist H. Block formulates this as follows, quote, If the individual exchange is abolished, the production is necessarily social, so the products are necessarily social as well. Marx did not continue to rack his brains over the methods of achieving and determining social necessity. As long as it cannot be shown how the market mechanism is to be replaced, an economic calculation in the common economy, i.e. rational socialism, is unthinkable. Before we deal with this topic, we must consider the difference in character between capitalist and communist distribution. It is true that the market is an indicator of needs, but only in the capitalist sense. The thing is that labor power is a commodity that can be bought on the market, while the price is about the minimum subsistence level. The national product can grow immensely, but the worker receives no more than the quantity determined by the value of his labor power. Without a doubt, his needs are much greater. They are just awakened by the great mass of product that is unattainable for him. Let capitalism, with a beautiful gesture, point to its market mechanism, which is supposed to be an indicator of need. In reality, it does not know needs, or even less so than those who want to replace the market with a statistical apparatus. It is not even necessary for capitalism to know needs precisely because it does not create for needs, but profit. Capitalism works best, and it is healthiest, when real big profits are made. That is, when the workers are given as little as possible. For the proletariat, the whole splendid market mechanism moves only within the narrow limits that the capitalist profit production leaves to the commodity labor power. At the same time, there is no question of knowing needs in the communist sense. Okay, so this is a, an interesting section where he's dealing with the kind of attacks against the replacement of the market with statistics by the bourgeois economists. You know, they talk about, you know, how the market uh, actually manages to manage production, you know, increasing and decreasing the production of certain goods based on, you know, the kind of feedback mechanism of, of prices and supply and demand. From their point of view, the market mechanism can very well do what consumption statistics cannot do. Now, Kielce in the chat there has said that, like, cybernetics solves these problems. And I think, like, with uh, modern technology, you can solve this kind of market mechanism with, you know, information systems that are well planned. So I think you can have a, quote unquote, communist system with, you know, cybernetic functions, but where they're not using labor time planning. And you, you, you know, you can have alternative forms of production today that that they could not do then but i think that kind of is missing the kind of key thing about like uh, the labor time measure kielce i I was kind of trolling actually oh Uh, damn it (laughs) (laughs) in fact the more we read this book the more i wonder whether a lot of the stuff that i've read on cybernetics you know sort of from the 70s and 80s and, and, and now could have could have worked because it sort of when it comes down to it, it's just a better a better form of statistical modeling, which isn't to say that there isn't a place for that. But you need and 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 there's a lot of statistical modeling in, in capitalism as well. I'd say this most production these days is probably 
modeled on, on statistics rather than rather than sort of market itself. But you you have that feedback mechanism where everything else fails that tells you your your model is broken with a market. And and that's the thing I think that that's that's needed. And, and that's why I'm really attracted to the to what's being proposed in this book because it, it it sort of like gives you a feedback mechanism when all else fails. And and I'm not sure cybernetics necessarily does does promise the give you know provide that promise. Yeah, and, and all the the problems with you know the it you can you could have a cybernetic system with still having a central bureaucratic planners deciding on people's consumptions standards and not the workers doing it themselves and a lack of rationality between the price and the actual labor time in the good. So I think there's a whole series of like other things that aren't solved by that type of approach. But yeah, good trolling, good trolling. Appreciate it. Okay, so he goes on then to critique as well the this capitalist, wonderful capitalist market mechanism. This last sentence here. For the proletariat, the whole splendid market mechanism moves only within narrow limits that capitalist profit production leaves to the commodity labor power. At the same time, there is no question of knowing the needs in the communist sense. So this is a, a major point, you know, like... Like, what would the market be for Lamborghinis in the morning, say, for example, or whatever the hell, you know, you know, th that the market only tells you what the demand is given people's ability to consume. And under a system like capitalism, like there's probably large swathes of luxury goods that under communism would have no goddamn market at all. Like a Lamborghini, probably, or, you know, some of these crazy watches that are. Yachts. But no, I think we should have commie yachts. I, I'm well up for yachts. <laughs> I like sailing, man. I'd love to own a boat. But like, you know, let's not say the yachts, but definitely <laughs> super yachts. I'll go with super yachts. This whole, um, a massive area of like this market that is like, would just be completely destroyed under a different system. Uh, any any thoughts on this section about the market then before I, I get cancelled for talking about how much I like yachts? Randy. So this is also a little talking about the sentence right above when it's talking about capitalism works best and it is healthiest when real big profits are made. That is when workers are given as little as possible. I think I kind of want to talk about that too like with this because I think that a lot of the bourgeois economists would or might argue that capitalism works best and it's healthiest when enough of the needs of the workers are met that you know, there's not the potential for revolution and like, there's not all of the potential there. Right. So I, I like, I guess what, what is he, what exactly is he saying by the healthiest? Because I think that that's pretty important as far as understanding the point that he's trying to make. Just like the best setup for growth. You know, capitalism doesn't hit crisis when the profits are high. I think that's kind of his point. You know, capitalism in its heyday, when was it? You know, probably the 18th century, 19th century or something when profits were dead high and expansion was was crazy, crazy big, you know, and crazy big. Yeah. Expansion was like, you know, flying on full throttle. I think that's his kind of general point. But also, like if, if capitalism is really firing, working well, like the workers will have jobs as well. I think that you see the revolutionary times more so when the workers are getting thrown out due to crisis. I think that's probably fair. Uh, I think Kielter's hand up. Kind of what he's saying there is capitalism works best just after a crisis, because that's when the workers are given as little as possible, and that's when you get the biggest profits for anyone who's coming back into the market. 
you do have higher prob profits after a crisis, but you've just gone through the crisis as well. Any more points? Anybody have any more any, anything to say on on this section here? Could you consider the healthiest as like the post World War Two, where there's kind of that reset of the uh, yeah. fixed capital, right? Yeah, like I think it was probably one of the healthiest points. You know, probably, you know, but uh, it was pre World War One. There was high profits then, I think. The Roaring Twenties, not in Europe, that's for sure. In America, in the twenties, uh, early twenties, was probably pretty roaring too. But yeah, I think like for respect to like us, like in our in the last hundred years, you would say absolutely post World War Two. Nothing capitalism likes best than a whole load of destruction. Okay, somebody else here who wants to read uh, E, the abolition of the market in the Marxist sense, Chris. E, the abolition of the market in the Marxist sense. So far, we have not made any further progress on the question of market abolition. We will, therefore, examine the Marxist view of the abolition of the market. The market is the place where the owners of the products meet to exchange their commodities. It is thus through the market that the transport of goods between companies is carried out and the distribution of consumer goods is carried out. This movement and distribution of goods must also take place under communism so that it is not a specific capitalist phenomenon. This cannot, therefore, be the abolition of the market. The market, however, does not only provide for the distribution of goods, but at the same time expresses the social conditions in which we live. It expresses the fact that the goods are privately owned. The market is also an expression of ownership. That is the essence of the market. Under communism, the market is simply abolished because, under the altered circumstances, no one can give anything except his labor, and because, on the other hand, nothing can pass to the ownership of individuals except individual means of consumption. This is the famous suspension of the market. The abolition of the market is, in the Marxist sense, nothing more than the result of the new legal relations. It says nothing about the organization of production or consumption, or how production is linked to needs. Bolshevism regards the abolition of the market as an organizational question. How can all operational units be united in one hand? With the abolition of the market, Marxism expresses only the changes to, in social relations, the change in ownership. As already mentioned, the movement of goods naturally remains under communism. However, the price of goods is not determined by supply and demand, but moves on the basis of their production time. In the association of free and equal producers, therefore, the various operational organizations must interact with each other if they wish to receive goods. Since there is settlement between the operational units, it looks as if it is a matter of buying and selling, and thus the market still seems to be present. The same applies to the distribution of consumer goods. Consumers receive their products in their cooperative for consumption money and have complete freedom in the choice of goods. So here too, it seems as if they buy and sell, although it is not different than redeeming consumer vouchers for products. It can also be said that consumers have several vouchers with which they can collect the goods of their choice. The abolition of the market can, therefore, be understood to mean 
that it continues to exist under communism according to its external appearance. However, the social content of the movement of goods has changed fundamentally. The transmission of goods based on production time is an expression of the new social conditions. In fact, this is a transformation of concepts, as we have seen previously in terms of value, income, and expenditure, etc. And just as language will preserve all these old names for the time being, it will also preserve the name market, because obviously the same principle prevails as that which regulates the exchange of commodities as far as this is exchange of equal values. But content and form are changed. This is Marx with his old content and form and essence. Okay, under capitalism, the market, you know, is the market is the place where the owners of products meet to exchange their commodities. It is thus through the market that the transport of goods between companies is carried out and the distribution of consumer goods is carried out. This movement and distribution of goods must also take place under communism so that it's not a specific capitalist phenomenon. You like, you know, we we had transfer a movement of of goods between even hunter gatherer societies you know that they would some hunter gatherers would have certain raw materials and there would be elements of of trade on the edges of their society so like we wouldn't say that the hunter gatherers had a market in any true sense you know so the just transferring of of goods in is in itself not a market because what they're trying to distill the actual essence of a capitalist market is here let, let's let's read it here the market however does not only provide for the distribution of goods but at the same time expresses the social conditions in which we live okay what was he meaning by that it expresses the fact that goods are privately owned we've got wage labor and the goods are privately owned labor power is a commodity the market is also an expression of ownership that is the essence of the market so that when when we meet in the market, like I buy a, a car, I give you a certain amount of money or whatever, like the ownership of that car is transferred to me. Now, only at the level of consumption, would you say in in, com in communism, would there be like that kind of a different ownership relation that would be a, like a, a person would own their consumption goods. But prior to that, all the way through society transfer from raw materials into certain intermediary products to consumer products at all stages there there is no transfer of ownership it's like everybody owns that so the actual content like the the essence is very different even if the form itself maintains an outward similarity to a capitalist market <clears throat> let me read this little quote here that my, I, I think so this is from the gotha Pro, uh, program under communism, the market is simply abolished because under the altered circumstances, no one can give anything except his labor. And because on the other hand, nothing can pass to the ownership of individuals except individual means of consumption. So there's no dude out there in a rent in a house and he's getting the, you know, in the rental market, he's getting an income for not working. Yeah. There's nobody out there who's selling a drug who's able to put a patent on it who can siphon off surplus from all over the place so that he can make an extra profit. In that sense, the market is entirely different. Kielce. I wonder what, to what degree implementing such a, a system would 
actually just sublimate some of the systems of hierarchy that, that that money currently makes quite public. So say something like housing provision, for example, which you think would be allocated fairly, but it would be hard to tell if, if someone was, you know, getting a nicer housing unit than someone else because of some favor and some some back scratching done and, and ditto across the whole society. In fact, it sort of starts to make me wonder if what you end up with is is, is similar to sort of a giant commune where uh, where we, we you know in in theory everything is non hierarchical, but you know everything sort of works under the surface and is is quite toxic as a result. And I'm not I'm not saying that I think that would happen. I just think there's it'd be interesting to explore the the risk of that happening. Oh, I think it's quite likely to happen. To be honest, I would say that like you know people will fight will sir you know. I wouldn't say everybody cares about their rights to surplus, you know, I, but I think certain people really would. And I think that that would become an area whereby people can try and get a better deal. I, I think that's kind of inevitable. I think that's where a lot of the politics will kind of lie, but it would be entirely dampened down. I I don't think you could, you'll end up with somebody saying, well, oh, I know the fellow on the committee, so I got to live in Buckingham Palace, but they might be able to, get like a better apartment with a better view. I don't doubt some of that will go on. And I think like that's a an ongoing battle for society to try and get away from systems of, of corruption like that. I think the class, the battle, you know, the, the kind of class war will shift to areas where it, it can be sustained. And, you know, I think that's where we would likely to see elements pop out. I think it would be highly dampened, though, this quote, this is the famous suspension of the market, going on the previous just quote from the Gotha critique of the Gotha program. The abolition of the market is, in the Marxist sense, nothing more than the result of the new legal relations. Yeah, so you don't like change the market mechanism, like this kind of idea of Proudhon with labor money or MMT. You don't say, oh, the nexus, the, the key most radical thing to do is to change money form. It's no, you change the production basis, the legal relations upon production. And then we see the the higher, the kind of secondary, second order effects, like the different, the change in the market based off those kind of core underlying fundamental principles. Okay, I think we'll try F. Who read that last one there? Randy. F, the orientation of production to the needs. However, the economist block is not satisfied with such an explanation of the abolition of the market, because it does not solve the problem he is actually talking about. He wants to know what will replace the market mechanism, what is the measure of needs under communism, that is, how the production apparatus will be adapted to needs. We answer that capitalism has no measure of needs, and therefore we don't have to replace anything at all. Communism can only achieve this by linking the distribution organizations directly to the production so that the needs become the direct guideline of production. Thanks to the threefold sacrosanct market mechanism with which supposedly adapted production to needs, the proletariat, when it takes power, is burdened with a production apparatus which unproductively squanders at least half of the labor power. At the same time, it is not set up according to the needs of millions, but according to purchasing power. Of the workers who are involved in the production of consumer goods, a greater part will produce those articles which serve the consumption of the capitalists, landowners and their retinue, state officials, church people, etc. Only a small part will produce those articles which are intended for the consumption of the income of the working class. 
With the change in the social relationship between worker and capitalist, with the revolutionary transformation of the capitalist relations of production, this would change immediately. If the working class is at the helm, if it has the power to produce for itself, it will very quickly and without much effort raise capital to speak with the vulgar economists to the level of its own needs. The adjustment of production to the needs, therefore, involves a complete transformation of the production apparatus. The factories that work exclusively for the luxury needs of the bourgeois are coming to a standstill or must be directed to the needs of the workers as quickly as possible. How quickly such a transformation can take place, we have seen during the war and in the following years in all countries. First, the whole production apparatus was adjusted to the production of war material, only to be transformed again after 1918 for the production of peace. By the way, it should be noted that capitalism itself switched off its famous market mechanism when it set up production for its needs, the needs of war. The organizational transformation into a communist economy can be carried out quickly despite the enormous difficulties whereby the needs for clothing, food, and housing are the guiding principles for the transformation. The food and drink industry is being transformed in such a way that the products that were previously produced exclusively for the bourgeois are no longer being made because the focus will be the satisfaction of the needs of the proletariat. Housing construction is a burning issue for the working class. A large part of production must, therefore, be directed towards the production of materials for housing construction. In short, the whole production undergoes a thorough transformation to meet the new demands. The first stage of communist production will, therefore, be characterized by the strong growth of some industries and the shrinking of others. It is a transformation process that will certainly not be without problems and inconveniences. It must, therefore, also be emphasized that this construction cannot simply take place in an uncontrolled manner but that it must be carried out systematically. In this respect, the various efforts that have been and are being made to this end in Russia undoubtedly provide valuable material. While it is true that the Russian economy is based on the profitability of state capital and not on the needs of its workers, it is only practical experience we have in this field and we must make use of what we have. So he makes this <laughs> a funny comment about how when Bloch was asking about like, what would replace the market mechanism? Because what is the measure of needs under communism? The GIC say, we answer that capitalism has no measure of needs and therefore we don't have to replace anything at all. Communism can only achieve this by linking the distribution organizations directly to production so that needs become the direct guideline of production. So I think within, you know, we hear this idea of socialism as a planned system I think that it's a combination of both planning and this kind of autonomous, decentralized uh, links between distribution and production centers. If the increase in demand for shoes goes up one year within during that year, we don't say that I think any any rational socialist system would allow this kind of, you know, inverted commas, market connection, this like uh, linking of the distribution and the production centers to manage what needs to be produced and that the planning elements would be much more based upon like uh, large scale plans of general directions of the apparatus. So I think there's a, a, a tension within the idea of socialist planning between this automatic market type mechanism and the, I think the large scale plans like a, let's reduce our CO2 2% this year or let's reforest 40% or let's let's have components in all our electronics 
let's redesign them so that they can be fixed easily and not just thrown out. I think, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of high level kind of planning type mechanisms that are done at a higher up level than just saying we need to produce 1.3 million shoes this year, uh, regardless of what happens to demand from consumption from society. So he talks a little bit then about what kind of priorities you would have in a post-revolution. So what should we prioritize? You know, he makes a, a case here like that to change your production for super high-end luxury watches into some other type of, you know, to use those machines for some other types of production that will be used by society. You know, there's all whole swathes of stuff that, that might change. And he talks about how in war conditions, this is precisely what the bourgeoisie did. I think in America between like, was it 1939 and 1945? I think it might even been longer than that. There was no cars built. Every single car factory got reconditioned towards, I think mainly building tanks. Randy had a, had a comment. Uh, I was just pointing out the similarity to, you know, the coronavirus responses with, uh, you know, shifting factories to making masks and the like, like, it's just a very recent example of this. Absolutely. You know, and in World War II, it was an incredible scale that Americans did it. They literally flicked a switch and they just changed production systems all over the place. I think the Germans in World War I, like Lenin and a lot of the people were extremely impressed by how, what the Germans did in a short space of time. Must have been probably one of the first cases maybe of, of it being done to such a scale. So then he talks about the difficulties, uh, like about what type of things you should prioritize. It's interesting because I was reading a book there on 1919, <clears throat> the revolutions in Europe in 1919 and the conditions post-World War I. And uh, it's like some of the conditions were really, like the lack of food was really incredible. Uh, I think in Vienna, older people were volunteering to commit suicide so there'd be enough food for the young people. Like, so when things get really, really rough, the main priorities would be in a post-revolutionary period is food, water, shelter, clothes. You know, this this is the stuff, heating, that that absolutely would be the first needs for first needs that would need to be me, need to be met. I could imagine things being the kind of luxury production could take many years to get going if it was a you're talking a post-civil war situation. Why anybody else have any any comments here in this section? Uh, Randy. Um, so I think maybe something that could be interesting to talk about is bringing in something that this book didn't really talk about at all, which is just like, you know, climate change and trying to change our energy infrastructure and stuff. Because I, I think that the food and drink industry is being transformed in such a way that its products were pre previously produced exclusively for the bourgeois. I think that like I, I'm in the wine industry and there's a lot of like more, you know, natural wines or biodynamic wines, like kind of stuff that's trying to also and strengthen the ecosystem of the vineyard and whatnot it, and it's just its market is largely for more like the bourgeois and whatnot largely just because you know with the economics of that it's much more expensive to produce it and whatnot but i just think it's interesting to think about how we would address things like industrialized agriculture being more efficient to you know produce the food that we need for the population, like while still prioritizing being sustainable in our consumption. 
yeah, I think there's a, a massive need for more more labor intensive forms of agriculture that are sustainable, like permaculture type ones where you can't just mow in with a big tractor. You know, there are some kind of more market based approaches and permaculture, like a, there's a kind of a movement for regenerative agriculture and stuff like that. But most of them kind of seem to survive on basically selling high end stuff to reasonably well off middle class people. For sure. But I, I think just like the wines, you know, it's a lifestyle choice buying yourself an organic wine. So I, I think that, but I, I do feel like, yeah, there's a massive, like a, a literally a, a wartime level need, need to restructure the productive units of capitalism to deal with climate change. Now, will capitalism do it for climate change? You know, I don't know. But a communist society would undoubtedly have that task to do. Randy? Yeah, so I was thinking, so... Do you think that maybe if we were thinking about this with respect to that, then perhaps, you know, the organizational transformation into a communist economy can be carried out quickly, despite, I guess, when you're talking about the guiding principles, you would just kind of add a caveat that we need to focus on, like, providing these things in a sustainable way over, you know, long periods of times, as opposed to more of a wartime economy where you're just trying to make it work for the task. Like, or I guess... I guess it is like that for the task, but the task being, you know, shifting our energy infrastructure or whatever. Yeah, I can imagine it would be a, an initial, like a, a, a change of in energy infrastructure, like planet wide would take a big, massive, you know, probably kind of once off amount of work to be done, you know, and to, and then to maintain that way of life, that change of life from then on, it's more just like, you know, depreciating capital and replacing of, of capital kind of a thing. But like, you know, it, it would be a, a, the equivalent of a wartime thing. Like, a, you know, if we're being honest about a communist society, I think like it's undoubtedly the case that a war is going to be involved somewhere along the lines that would be highly, highly destructive. So you're probably <laughs> looking at uh, both being necessary in our, if, you know, if it was to happen in the next 20 years. Yeah, here's wishing. Let, let's let's go. Final section G, the cooperatives and the benchmark of needs. Who wants to take this? Let's see. Kielce, do you fancy rounding out the evening with the all star Kielce? How do you think? <laughs> sure. The cooperatives and the benchmarks of needs. The needs are therefore the driving force and the guideline of communist production. Or, as we can also say, production is geared to demand but not the demand in the wild as capitalism knows it, we must not lose sight of the fact that production and distribution are by no means independent of each other, but that they determine each other. That is why the union of free and equal producers also requires the union of free and equal consumers. Just as production is carried out collectively by the operational organizations, distribution is carried out collectively by all kinds of cooperatives. In these cooperatives, the individual wishes of the consumers are expressed jointly. And because under communism, the middlemen disappear and the cooperatives are directly linked to the operational units, the needs as they are expressed in the cooperatives are directly transferred to production. Undoubtedly, since the current production system is so badly adapted to needs, it will certainly not be possible to satisfy needs in the first days of communism. Now, the operational units 
are not supposed to expand production on their own authority in order to be able to react quickly to incoming orders because they cannot go beyond the general framework established in the general production plan. They can move freely, but within the plan. Otherwise, other sectors will run into difficulties, so that the targeted conversion is not possible. This link between the production apparatus and needs is an issue that can only be resolved by the flow of life with the production plan as the guide for the producer's own initiative and activity. Just as the liberation of the workers can only be the work of the workers themselves, it is also self-evident that the organizational connection between production and needs can only be the work of the producer-consumer. Okay, so this is going to this like section, this kind of bit I was talking about earlier. Let me read this here because now the operational units are not supposed to expand production on their own authority in order to be able to react quickly to incoming orders because they cannot go beyond the general framework established in the general production plan. They can move freely, but within the plan. Otherwise, other sectors will run into difficulties so that a targeted conversion is not possible. You know, I think that there is certainly with more kind of with IT systems and I think the use of things like buffer stocks I think that a lot of this stuff can be allowed, for example. You know, it, it's pretty common in, in capitalism for buffer stocks to be kept. So say, for example, in the in the US, they have like an oil reserve, you know, a, a kind of a, a national oil reserve where they have like, you know, 500 million barrels or a billion barrels of oil that they store. And they use that to allow, like, if there is an increase in demand, they, they will release some or they will they will fill it back up and when command goes down that like this ability to have uh, essentially uh, these buffers can allow people to work within the plan you know extend outside of the the planning things and you know when we have all this general accounting we can see uh, what the consumption levels are going it should be pretty easy to know if things are going towards dangerous levels whereby we actually say no you cannot even though you you know you cannot produce any more up to this amount I think Will put his hand up. Yeah, so the U.S. definitely has the strategic uh, oil reserves, but that's mostly like for a military function. I think, you know, with just-in-time manufacturing and distribution, we've actually seen that a lot of the buffer stocks that used to exist in warehouses and stuff have been increasingly made as small as possible, right? Because the less you keep an inventory, the faster you can kind of turn over your product. You know, you can circulate through production cycles more quickly and make more profit, right? Um, so I think, and, and like COVID has shown some issues with that approach with all these shocks and, you know, problems with the supply line. So I'm not sure that it's ready-made for us to, to kind of just uh, pick up. We definitely have the technical know-how to do it, but I, I don't know if like the physical plant is, I think the physical plant has been progressively eroded uh, in recent times. You're just saying like under capitalism now, the idea, this use of like the reduction in circulating capital. Yeah, you know, the, the buffer profit. stocks. Yeah, that there's fewer and fewer and released. smaller and smaller buffer stocks within the capitalist system. The, the government yeah. separately allocates, you know, the strategic reserves, but that's for like war. So they can, you know, fight. Yeah. And also it was for the, it was the oil shocks that I think it was introduced for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, you yeah, know, it was a lever of power that they just switched off on the Saudis. They're just like, oh, you want to cut production? Uh, let's see you cut off production for a year then. So, you know, I, I, I definitely under capitalism, like that whole thing coming from Japan of just-in-time production, 
like was was all about designed about having less stock. You need a a, sh- a smaller capital outlay, and thus a higher rate of profit. But I, I do think that the ability for us to have computer technology to tell us what is the increase in say, like say if the shoe companies wanted to increase their leather by an extra 10%, what would the effect be? And how would that cascade down through the society, through other other parts? Do we have the ability to go uh, higher at this time? You know, I think, you know, will, will this cause a knock-on effect in, you know, some other like leather you know, jacket production or something. So I, I think that there is the ability for these systems to allow for more leeway now than in the past. Kielce? It's an oddly detailed section. It seems to me like he can be quite high level in a lot of his, a lot of the book. And it, I don't see the need to go into such detail here because there, there are other obvious solutions as well. I mean, um, if you just have an order book, for example, then you can quickly tell who for the next year or two years is, is, has been allocated uh, production from from different units, and then you can you can you can redefine your decisions on 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 production based on on those bases as you see you know a, a, you know a increased order for the for the next year coming in and, and stuff like that. And we do that sort of thing in capitalism as well. I don't see why they couldn't do that in in this system. Maybe maybe it's to do with the amount of complexity to look at all of these things outside of the plan in real time when you don't have IT. Perhaps, I, I don't know. That's my that's my in, it, my instinct on it. Yeah. So a final final sentence here of the chapter today is, just as the liberation of the workers can only be the work of the workers themselves, it is also self evident that the organizational connection between the production and needs can only be the work of the producer consumer. Yeah, I think that's nicely put. So, have anybody got any comments then before we wrap up for today? Okay, so next week we are on to chapter 13, which is, so we're getting on to accumulation, a short one. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar.